Thank you for downloading episode 8 of Development Runs. This is Owen Bader in Ethiopia, very happy to be introducing a new episode after a long break over Christmas. I'd like to wish our listeners a happy new year and offer a special thank you to those of you who got in touch wanting to know when the next episode would be. Now today's episode is a bit different from past editions of Development Runs because basically we're going to do a book review. I'm joined today by Jonathan Glennie, who is the author of a new book, The Trouble With Aid. Jonathan is currently the Christian Aid Country Representative in Colombia and was previously involved in the Make Poverty History campaign. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. Hi. Let's start by explaining about the book. There are lots of rather dull, very worthy books about the aid business. And in my view, this is not one of them. This is a short, readable uh, book full of anecdotes and examples about the way that aid works and uh, missing out all the kind of lofty rhetoric that you often read in books like uh, Jeff Sachs's book on uh, ending poverty. So the ideas that might otherwise be quite boring, such as aid conditionality, are brought to life with examples that illustrate and support the arguments. Jonathan, do you want to tell us why you wrote the book? It's quite critical of aid, and you've you spent a long time campaigning for more and better aid. So why did you write this book now? That is true. I did. I was part of the Make Poverty History campaign uh, when I worked for Christian Aid in London, and clearly an important part of that movement was, a, was the campaign for more and better aid. So, uh, in fact, really by default I was campaigning for more and better aid, although I, I, it wasn't an area that I really... Um, I, I focused more on the better aid, I would say. I wrote this book, and thanks very much for those comments. I mean, that's, that's precisely what... I was trying to do, not another academic treatise. Uh, there, are, there are lots of books, uh, especially at the moment, about uh, the impacts of aid, and some of them are really good. Uh, most of them are quite long, um, and a lot of them are, get into the technicalities quite quickly. I was very much thinking about uh, campaigners, thinking about people very interested and passionate about Africa and aid, uh, and I wanted to present um, I suppose, arguments that do the rounds in the academic community and actually very much in the NGO community, but tend not to then be uh, shared with, uh, m with most people, I think I have to say that. So um, uh, I, I wrote a, a short book, um, and I hope it's, it, it communicates well. I think it does. I think it's, it's full of, uh, of, of really interesting examples and anecdotes, and it, it doesn't slip into jargon, which is one of its great strengths. And one of the things you've said is that it's the only book that looks at the overall impact of aid. Uh, and you've divided that analysis into, into four parts. The, the direct impact of aid. Um, second, the impact of aid on policies in developing countries. Third, the impact of aid of, on institutions and governance. And then lastly, the macroeconomic impacts on, on growth and exchange rates. And if I've, if I've understood you right, your argument is that when you take all four of those effects into account, government aid to Africa can actually have some quite harmful effects. And it's possible that those harmful effects might outweigh the good that aid does. Yeah. But I that's 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 is that yeah. right? Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. And, and it's really a response to what I consider to be a, a one-sided 
analysis of aid. And this is true in a lot of the books that, that, that even the books that talk about is aid working, they'll look at what I've described as the direct impacts of aid. How many schools have been built? How many roads have been built? How many children have been uh, vaccinated? And that they are really, really important. And in my book, I make very clear that those impacts of aid uh, in general have been positive, And I don't want to undermine at all uh, the, the impressive work that, that NGOs and, and uh, governments do with regard to those issues. But I do want to say, actually, there are other impacts of aid as well, impacts that those working in the business know quite a lot about, conditionality, the way that governments are forced to change their economic and social policies if they want to receive aid. Really importantly, accountability. Who are governments accountable to? As, as more and more people are accepting that it's the institution, the state, that uh, is vital if we're going to have long-term development, uh, something that wasn't accepted in the 80s and early 90s. Um, so we're going to then, we're then, come to we're going to come to those come details, to yeah. but, let, but yeah. let's just in aggregate, in total, are you? I mean, uh, it's not clear to me from the book whether you're saying that in total aid does actually do more harm than good, or just that there yeah. are some circumstances, some of the time, where because of these negative things that you describe, and which we'll we'll talk about in a second, whether you're saying that um, just in some circumstances, some of the time, it does more harm than good. Yeah. It's much more of a second in some circumstances, some of the time. I think it's something you might agree with, Owen, that trying to say aid does good worldwide or aid is bad worldwide. I, I don't I don't actually find that they're particularly helpful uh, things to think about. You know, has aid helped Botswana in the last 30 years? Has aid helped Vietnam in the last 30 years? How could it how could a change in the way we give aid to Bolivia? You know, they're actually what we need to be talking about. And, and I'm actually concerned about this idea that doubling aid to Africa um, as this kind of general response to poverty is the right way. I'm, 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 I'm happy to see aid increase to some countries. I think Botswana might actually be a good example. Um, which is r relatively well governed and relatively uh, little amount of aid. But in other countries, they have for far too long received far too much money uh, for reasons of policy, conditionality, and for reasons of accountability especially, and therefore aid should be reduced to those countries. It, it's, it's much more a, 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 an individual analysis of each circumstance. And I know that gets complicated, and I know that, that sometimes isn't that helpful for, for making big campaigns, but I do think it's really vital because when you speak to African civil society, it's, it, it's those people themselves that tell you we're not so sure that all this focus on aid is a good thing. So let's let's go into each of the four issues in turn. And the first one is about the direct impact of aid. So you have a, a really quite useful uh, and and succinct description of the aid industry today and and the changes in it. And then you talk in a in another in the next chapter about uh, the impact that aid has. For example, people having access to health clinics and schools, particularly where user fees were abolished. Um, and then you also talk about some of the examples where um, that it's either not been a success or the success has been less clear. And you, you use examples about mega projects such as dams and infrastructure, which uh, have been quite damaging on the environment or have had damaging impacts on the community. Um, now... I just want to be sure in this chapter, you're, if I've read you right, is that you're saying that most aid projects, in terms of the direct impact, do have good impact, but there are some that don't work properly where the harm outweighs the good. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't go into um, a hugely technical analysis of each aid project or, or, um, to, to kind of analyse that, but I do say 
that I'm happy to accept that all of the positive impacts of aid have been very positive. And I don't want to fall into the trap, which I think uh, some people who are nervous about aid, let's say, or who criticise aid, you know, try and try and coalesce everything to support their argument. I don't want to do that. I want to actually be honest and say, look, yeah, the, the positive impacts of aid have been very positive. Let's put that on the, on the uh, you know, positive side of the ledger. And then let's look at all of the impacts and see overall on balance what we ought to be doing. I mean, my view actually is that all of those uh, positive impacts, that's about money. That's about money being available. And there's an important part of the book which says we can't just reduce aid. We have to replace aid. There are very many ways in which money is leaving Africa. You know, we can build schools. We need money, but we don't necessarily need aid. The next chapter, which I found uh, the most vigorously and persuasively argued, deals with the strings that donors attach to aid, which is known technically as conditionality. And you say, if I've understood you right, that the impact of aid on the policy of government in developing countries has in many ways been more important than the direct impact of the aid activities themselves. Tell us a bit about your argument on the impact of the strings that are attached to aid. Well, I think that's true. And I think uh, that's actually quite commonly accepted by a lot of people. It was certainly, in certainly the intention of the aid givers. They weren't in the business of giving a little bit of money here for a school, a little bit of money here for a, a hospital. What they were much more interested actually in was structural adjustment. And that was the, the phrase that was um, became common. Um, so I, I make the, the case that when you look at the direction, the, the change in direction of African policy over the last 20, 30 years in economic policy and social policy, um, it's, it's, it's a strong case to make that the impact those policy changes have had on poor people, the loss of jobs, um, the charging for basic services, um, the undermining of product, productive capacity, all of those impacts um, which were very much associated with aid because the, the issue was if you don't make these changes, uh, we won't give you the money, uh, are actually deeper and importantly more long term for development in Africa, for people in Africa, than the sometimes often positive changes, which was actually how the money was actually spent. Some people say that uh, aid conditionality really didn't work, that uh, it's impossible for donors to insist on uh, these kind of policy changes. And I make the case, and I think I make it strongly, that that's simply not the case. Africa uh, and most countries in Africa, especially the high aid dependent ones, have significantly shifted their, their policies on a range of issues, and that's linked to aid. And I also make the case that even if you don't agree with me, and I, 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 I think I also make a strong case that those policy changes have been negative for poor people in Africa, but even if you don't think that, then you should still agree that the policy changes are more important uh, right. than the direct impacts, and that therefore, if you're making an overall evaluation of aid, you have to take them very strongly into account. I think it is important to distinguish that the normal, the, or perhaps the more common critique of, of aid conditionality is exactly what you just said, which is that it doesn't work, that, that the conditions that uh, donors attach to aid aren't rigorously applied enough, or that the governments to which they give aid have other rather more pressing political priorities. And that means that the strings that get attached to aid actually don't make any difference to the decisions the government makes. But you're making quite a different argument, which is yeah. which you're saying that it, that it does actually make a difference in some countries. And when it does make a difference, it, it's actually made things 
I don't think it, I don't think it makes a difference in some countries. I think it's made a massive difference. I, I I agree with some of the analyses which which demonstrate that in on certain occasions uh, governments have have refused, have fought against uh, the impositions of donors, um, and there is evidence that that happens. Of course, that happens in negotiations. But when you look at the last twenty, thirty years of economic and social policy in Africa, I think it's simply irrefutable that. Um, the direction that's been taken was under very great pressure from the donors, and and then and the anecdotes and evidence of that are just um, insurmountable. Every everyone will, every African uh, civil servant will have a story of how they had to do X because otherwise they weren't going to get the money. Um, and 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 actually, one of the most pernicious aspects of it is that African governments have learnt what policies are and aren't acceptable. So in a lot of cases, those negotiations simply that used to happen simply don't happen anymore because they know that they won't get X policy through. They know that it's a waste of political... Um, so it, beca- it, it becomes a form of self-censorship, basically. It's a, there's a huge amount of self-censorship that goes on um, because, because, because the accepted policies are well known. Now, is it your take that, that um, conditionality, if, if used well, if used in pursuit of good policies, if, if used in pursuit, for example, of policies encouraging governments to use more of their money for um, social services or to reach mm. marginalised communities, that that would be um, a good form of conditionality and it could actually make policies better in developing countries? And it's just, I think, the problem I, is that yeah. we've, just done, we've just used conditionality to pursue the wrong policies. I think that to a certain extent that's true. I mean, I think that especially on human rights uh, issues, uh, I think that the pressure of, uh, I suppose, the international community can be brought to bear on any country, not just a recipient country. My my emphasis would more strongly be uh, on the UN and other forms of, of pressuring countries to do the right thing. In general, I'm very nervous about conditionality because it undermines democracy, and that's the subject of the next chapter that we're about to talk about. But um, so, in general, I don't, I don't really have faith in uh, the better aid um, kind of vision that one day would achieve this conditionality, whereby donors are insisting on the right thing for African governments. There is no evidence that that's happened in the past, and I'm afraid there's little evidence that that, that that's about to happen. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader in Ethiopia, and my guest today is Jonathan Glennie, and we're talking about his new book, The Trouble with Aid. We've talked about your chapters on the direct impact of aid and on the impact of aid on policy. Let's turn now to the third of your four effects, which is the impact of aid on democratic institutions. Here you say that the way that donors behave makes it harder for citizens to claim their political and economic rights. So, for example, you talk about the parallel systems that donors set up to manage programmes. You say that technical assistance can actually reduce rather than increase capacity. You say that aid can fuel corruption. Um, And you say that aid can make things worse by keeping bad governments in power longer than they should be. And I suppose deep down what, what this comes to is that if money goes to governments other than from taxing their citizens, then the relationship between between a government and its citizens is undermined. And so uh, almost inevitably, aid is going to undermine the institutions and accountability of government. Is that a fair summary of, of your view on how aid does damage to institutions? Yeah. I, think it, I think it's a reasonably fair summary, especially the last bit. And that's, that's the fundamental bit. And I've just been reading a, an article by Adrian Wood, who's a previous... Uh, different economist who makes, I think, similar 
arguments. It's not simply a case of throwing money at the problem. It is more complicated that politics is involved. And it's something that's very difficult to measure. I can't put up uh, statistics on accountability as against statistics on how many schools are built. It's a complicated, subtle issue. Uh, it's, it's very, very linked to this concept of aid dependency that everyone recognises, but which is hardly ever recognised in policy documents. It's this, it's this uh, understanding that you have when you speak to African civil servants, African civil society, when they say we've become apathetic about voting because what good does it do? Only half of our leaders are accountable to us. The other half are the donors. Is there something that we can say about why that problem has been more of a problem in, say, Zaire, as it used to be, but less yeah. of a problem in places like Korea or Botswana, or indeed in, in post-war Europe under the Marshall Plan, where um, aid is, is seen to have had good direct impact? I think that's a really important point, and that's one of the main points I make, really. You look at Botswana, received huge amounts of aid in the 70s, then a significant reduction, and hasn't received huge amounts of aid relative to its GDP since. The same happened in Korea. Those kind of short uh, bursts of aid, and the same actually happened in the Marshall Plan in Europe, although its context was entirely different because, because the institutions were very well developed previously. Um, the difference now is that most African countries are about to enter their fourth decade of very high aid receipts. And that's why the issue of aid dependency has come to the fore. It's not the case of a small amount of money or even a large amount of money over a short period of time. It's a question of decade after decade, uh, accountability of government to citizens has been systematically undermined because actually it's more important what donors think than what citizens think. And as we understand more and more the importance of the state and the importance of, of, of democratic and accountable institutions for development, it's not just a question of, of building up separate systems, of, of getting money in there so people can be vaccinated. In the long term, we have to develop systems, we have to develop uh, institutions. And that's, I suppose, the major worry of many of my uh, colleagues in African civil society. And it's a major worry of mine. It's a major worry in the academic literature, but it's not something that's uh, come out much in our campaigning or our policies uh, on aid as NGOs and, in fact, as donors or, or recipients. Many of the uh, people who support the idea of budget support, which is when aid donors give aid to government budgets, say that budget support suffers fewer from fewer of these problems that budget support can actually contribute to building these institutions because if the money is flowing into the budget then it's up to parliament and civil society and and uh, the local decision making process to allocate and account for that money is that I got the sense from your book that, that you do think that budget support has, has less of the problems. Um, so do, do you think that if donors gave more of their aid as budget support, that, that you could get around this institutional problem? Uh, I, I, understand, I understand the push for budget support. I think it came as a recognition of some of the arguments I make in this book, and that are common. I mean, I'm not saying that they've totally made uh, you know, great leaps and bounds in terms of, in terms of the theory that uh, over-micro-conditionality uh, causes great problems and therefore, uh, ideally, uh, lump sums would be given to governments that are more or less trusted in order to, in, in order to promote their policy decision-making. Uh, unfortunately, it gets to one of the real uh, cruxes of the point. It's simply very, very hard to do that, and that's what we're seeing. Um, budget support... You know, Diffid always uses the cases of Ghana and Tanzania and hardly any others. It's not clear where budget support is really working. 
ultimately this issue of donors having the power over taxpayers is still the main issue. Governments and the UK government did it in the case of Ethiopia. It's going to happen all over the place when um, democratically elected governments in Africa do things that are not uh, viewed as sensible or right by donors. They will they, they, they will pull budget support. Those self censorship issues. Those knowledge of the bounds of the possible, which in my view have been really detrimental, not just to Africa, but to all sorts of developing countries in recent years. I work in Latin America at the moment, and you can see it all over the place. And Latin America has just broken out of that, of that feeling that nothing else is possible, only neoliberal policies, and they're implementing other things. Not all of them are working. But there's this feeling that, yes, we can, to use a current phrase, try different things. In Africa, that's simply not going to be possible as long as uh, the main uh, arteries of funding uh, come from donors. And finally, the fourth of your arguments about the effect of aid is on the macroeconomic impact. And in this chapter, you say that, um, well, you say first that growth doesn't, or economic growth doesn't always lead to poverty reduction. And then you say that there's contradictory evidence about whether aid leads to growth in the first place. And you talk about um, the possible bad effects of aid because of what's known as, as Dutch disease, which is where the exchange rate is pushed up by aid inflows. And that can lead to um, a loss of competitiveness. Let, let's, I know this isn't the, the major part of your argument, but I just want well, I, I also talk about the positive impacts of aid on, on growth. I, I try and give a balanced analysis. It's, it's, it's not trying to bash aid. Uh, it's, trying, it's trying to look at that as, an, as, a, as a macro, uh, look at the macroeconomic impacts and say, look, some of these can be positive, some of these can be negative. The main point, again, is that they have to be taken into account by people making policy about aid. And in this case, they absolutely are. I mean, the, the plethora of IMF reports, especially, and, and from all over the place, looking at the macroeconomic impacts of aid. Okay, so we've now got four overall effects of aid, the direct impact the impact on policy, the impact on institutions, and the macroeconomic impacts. What I felt about all of those is that in every case, those are the negative impacts that you talk about are things that donors could fix if donors behave differently. In other words, they're not inherent yeah. to the aid relationship. That, that Even if you think that there are these damaging effects, they're all things that if the donors change the way they behave and change the way they work together and work with, uh, with developing countries, that you could actually get rid of the harmful effects and still keep the good effects. Is, is, that, uh, is that too optimistic? Well, I, think that, I think that's probably the crux of, of our disagreement there, Noen, because my, my argument really, and I suppose um, if, I, if I were able to address uh, leaders of African countries, I would say that yes, it is possible to envisage a world in which donors no longer sought to impose their conditions and their wants on uh, poor countries, and that, uh, although I have to say it's harder to envisage a world in which the accountability problem is solved. I think that any, any donor-recipient relation where so much money uh, is received from a board will almost inevitably undermine the accountability of government to citizens. But even if we can envisage that world, I would urge African leaders and African people to look at the history of the last 50 years of aid and show me where, not show me where, I'm not very relevant, but to look where that's actually happened. And then to look at the current policies that are in play. There are some countries undoubtedly leading the way on this. Great Britain is one of them, Norway is another, and there are a number that really seem to understand and get this issue of accountability and conditionality. But the majority of donors, 
And I think we're privileged living in the UK because we, and we, we don't actually see the reality. The majority of donors see aid very much part and parcel of their security uh, and foreign and economic policy. The idea that they're going to that they're going to follow Britain uh, and 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 delink uh, aid from all of those concerns. Um, it, 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 well, the evidence doesn't suggest it. I, I, I'm I'm all for trying to modify the aid system. That's what we have to try and do. But I think realistically, looking at it in the next ten years, do we really expect aid to get so much better? I don't think there's the evidence for it. So at the end of the book, you describe a number of things that rich countries could do and you say should do to address the problems that developing countries uh, uh, have other than through the aid system. For example, doing more on trade, doing more on migration, uh, tackling domestic subsidies like agricultural subsidies that, uh, that distort markets and make it hard for uh, developing countries to trade their way out of poverty. Um, you talk about arms sales and illegal capital flows and corruption and intellectual property rights and so on. Um, do you think that there is any more prospect of rich countries really addressing those issues in a way that is good for developing countries than there is for making the kinds of reform to the aid system that you think are fairly improbable? Well, I think that's a very good point. I think that's a very, very good uh, critique. And I mean, we do live in a very, in a world in which these things are slightly unlikely. But I want to I make one thing really, really clear. If aid falls to Africa tomorrow, if aid is halved to Africa tomorrow, that would be an absolute disaster for African countries. Uh, what I'm setting out is not radical uh, aid cuts. It's a different vision of the political future. It's over the next 10 years, not seek to double aid, but seek to reduce aid. Uh, for the reasons that I've given. And I think that the, the fundamental problem of accountability is one that's not going to go away. That's why African governments should not wait for the West to do the right thing. They should set in train, and this I think is what also you're finding in Latin America, which I think is an, an area of, of great interest at the moment politically and economically. They should set in train those policies which will um, lead to a reduction in aid dependency, an increase in revenue, and more accountability to citizens, regardless of whether the West is on board or not. And that is a very difficult way to go down. Clearly, uh, you know, uh, Europe and the US and China and Japan are extremely powerful players. Um, but it's, 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 a it's, it's suggesting a shift. There is, there is far more money leaving Africa at the moment than, than arrives there in aid, in, in, in the form of, of capital flight, for instance. You know, you, uh, Western campaigners should be focusing on that, uh, and so should African governments, rather than um, holding out for this this day that one day aid is going to is going to be delivered in a in a fantastic form. It, 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 there's no evidence to suggest that it will. They should be focusing on climate change. They should be focusing on all these issues that actually are much more generous to Africa. We allow our Western leaders to come out of meetings and say, oh, we're being so generous, we're giving an extra 0.01% of our GDP to Africa, which sounds great because it's kind of got lots of noughts on the end, but it's actually a, a, a really tiny gesture compared with what they need to be doing, which is, which is trade rules, climate change, some of the things you've mentioned. Campaigners need to be focusing on that and not letting Western governments get away with the small change uh, that, is, that is the aid market. And... and I suppose even if you disagree with some of my analyses, 
that uh, aid is doing harm in many countries in Africa, and I hope that the book persuades you that I'm right. But even if you disagree with that, I suppose the second main argument is, even those people that, that do want to see more aid don't think it's as important as a range of other issues. But with very limited amount of resources and time, campaigners need to focus on the really important things and allow aid slowly to fall off the map. One thing you're careful to say in the book is that um, the problems you identify, you, you refer to them several places as problems with government aid, uh, as distinct from aid from, uh, from non-governmental organisations, NGOs and charities. But on the mm. face of it, some of the problems you describe seem like they would apply to aid given by NGOs as much as they do to government aid. So did yeah. you exempt NGOs from your criticism because you think that actually that kind of aid is a lot better or because you didn't look at it in much detail so you yeah. didn't want to comment or is it because you work for an NGO? It's, it's basically the first one. I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily better, but it's a far, far smaller scale. So, so you know, I work for Christian Aid. It's true that we have, uh, you know, certain issues as a powerful organisation when we turn up in Rwanda, um, there will be accountability issues. There will be, in a sense, policy conditionality issues in the sense that we won't work with everyone. We will work with those people we, 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 we think share our, our, share our vision and mission. Um, so those issues do exist in the NGO world, but on a far, far smaller scale. I don't think it's sensible to, 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 to think that they're making big differences in the accountability or the policy direction of whole countries. That's why I focused on big aid. And, and also, I think that there's a chapter in the book, I think it's chapter eight, which looks at why aid is really given, where I explain, in, in my view, the kind of political reasons uh, for, for aid giving from donors, what they hope to achieve by buying countries to a certain extent and by buying access uh, to, uh, for their businesses. And that, that aspect is much less important with NGOs, it's, because in general, they're more concerned uh, in, genuinely with the poor, um, obviously, there are political issues, uh, and I'm not saying that NGOs are perfect at all, but, but all, of, all of the aspects I look at in the book are relevant to NGOs, but of far smaller scale and therefore not quite so important. I should just say in defence of people who work for official aid agencies, that the people I know who work on aid in developing countries genuinely are interested Absolutely. in the Absolutely. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, I didn't mean to imply that at all. Um, uh, the, the people that work in development agencies tend to try and do absolutely their best within within the limits of where they're working. What I, what I wanted to say is that aid is very much part of the foreign policy uh, of most countries in the world. So let me sum up my overall view of the book. I, I, mean, I thought it was a really readable, commendably short explanation of why aid is not effective as, as effective as it could be. I thought it brings to life a subject which, frankly, when you start reading about the Paris Declaration, all that stuff can be pretty dull. And um, I thought it explains what seems at first like a paradox, which is that, you know, giving money to somebody you would think ought to make them better off, how that can actually make people or a country worse off. Um, so while I, I think the analysis I agree with, uh, but I do in the end disagree with the conclusion. Because uh, I think these problems are real. I think they are being talked about. I think they are to some extent being addressed. I don't think they're being addressed enough or fast enough, but I do think they're soluble. I do think that um, I, I, I take the view that we can create 
aid-giving institutions, and you've talked about NGOs as, as being an example of that, and I don't see why some of the advantages of, of aid-giving institutions can't be replicated by official do, do, donors. Do you, think, do you think that aid dependency is, is, a, is a very serious issue in Africa? And if so, if, if, if so especially with regard to accountability, and, and I want to make really clear that policy conditionality, despite what uh, some uh, analysts might say, is very much still going on in Africa. Okay? Yeah, no, I- but, but, but with regard to aid dependency, do you think it's still an issue? And then the second question then, Owen, is how much longer do you think African countries should receive these very, very high levels of aid? And in fact, what we're calling for, and I say we as the general kind of NGO community and, and UK government and everyone, is, is doubling of that aid. How long for? 2015? In 2025? Do we still want to be Africa to be receiving these very high levels of aid? Well, when you talk about very high levels of aid, but they're actually not all that high. They're, they're much smaller, the current levels of aid, than, for example, Europe was receiving in the Marshall Plan. They're probably about a quarter or a fifth per head. What we're talking about at the well, moment is... That was a very short amount of time. Right, but, let, but what we're talking about, what we're saying at the moment is that for the last four decades, we've been giving about 20 cents per person per week to Africans. And at the end of that, we're now saying, well, we've been giving you 20 cents a week for years now, and you're still poor. So you must have squandered all our help and, and assistance. 20 cents well, a week is not, 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 not a huge amount of aid. And so I don't... It, it, I is, don't it is relevant to the size of their economies. And, and yeah. the actual number is, if you're looking at the accountability of governments to citizens, the actual amount of money in terms of cents and dollars is not the key factor. The key factor is the amount of aid as a percentage of government spending compared with the amount of revenue as a percentage of government spending. In most countries in the world, uh, in the 1960s, for instance, Africa and South Asia received roughly the same amount of, of aid per GDP, 2.3%, according to the stats I got off the World Bank. And now average is about 9% in Africa, whereby in Asia it's, it's reduced to 1%. And countries like uh, um, Mali, Mauritania, Malawi, Sierra Leone, Burundi have received for decades up to 30% of their GDP, their GDP, not their, not their uh, government spending, in, in aid. That, that, so the point about aid dependency is not uh, that a lot of countries have received boosts from big money previously and that's really helped. It's about decade after decade of very high levels of aid. And that is new. And that's why, and that, and that, and that's why we're in a new era of aid now. But, and I would like to see a world, as I'm sure you would, in which... Uh countries didn't need that kind of support. But I would also like to live in a world in which if there are people who are so poor that they can't feed their children or can't educate their children or can't access basic health care, that people who are rich in the world, as a matter not of charity but of social justice, transfer the money from people who mm. have that money to people who need that money. Now, do I think that ought to yeah, come with, with all that. the policy condition of that? conditionality and strings attached that you've described no i don't but do i yeah. do i want to see a world in which we in which we say no we we don't want to live in a world where people who need those kinds of resources we're not prepared to give it to them because we haven't figured out a way to do that that doesn't interfere with their governance and accountability no i want to go on yeah. giving money to the poor as long as the poor need it and this is not yeah. a huge amount of money from from the point of view of the rich world do i no, think that's more important than fixing the trade rules or climate change no i don't i think that those kinds of policies that that rich countries should be pursuing for poor countries 
are exceedingly important and probably much more important than anything we can do with aid. But, mm. you know, I live in Ethiopia. You live in Colombia. Mm. You must see, as mm. I do every day, you know, you go mm. to a, a clinic here where somebody is being treated for a disease as a result of some donor giving the money for that. And you're changing people's lives. And you go to one, yep. one of these places and you just want to give them all the money in your pocket, the amount of good they're doing. And I don't see a problem with us trying to find a way to do that in a way that doesn't do the harm that you describe. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and, and, and that moral impulse, I think, is, I suppose, writing a book like this, um, you know, some people were worried about writing a book like this, especially from an NGO background, because people thought it might undermine uh, the moral impulse to want to do something. Um, and I've really tried not to do that. You know, I share absolutely that, that uh, moral impulse. We need to find a way of sharing uh, everything that we have, uh, especially as it derives in many ways from a history of, um, colonization and and oppression of these countries um, it's just that in I th I'm arguing that an overall analysis will will yes and, it's, and, it, and, it, and it implies tough decisions and you know in a sense it might be easy for me because I don't have to make them I'm not in a position of power but it uh, those those medicines that you mentioned that are a result of aid have to be put on the positive ledger of the aid equation but then we also have to look at the possible cuts in jobs the possible economic downturns, although or the possible increase in poverty, which was condition of receiving that aid. And if and, 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 and I, I, I see it as a, I see this as the fundamental question, probably between uh, your analysis and mine. Uh, we, we, we may share a very similar analysis of the what of the concern about aid dependency, concern of policy conditionality and, and those things. Uh, you are more confident that aid can be improved and I'm less confident. That might, that might be almost a, a good summary. Jonathan, thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Thank you. I've been talking today to Jonathan Glennie, whose book The Trouble with Aid is published by Zed Books at a very reasonable £12.99 for the paperback. You can find a link to his book on the Development Drums website, which is developmentdrums.org. Jonathan, thanks very much. Thank you. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be double. So come on and let me know. This indecision's bugging me. If you don't want me, set me free. Exactly who I'm supposed to be. Don't you know which clothes even fit me?